0: Thanks, Ian. Let's uh, pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for John chapter 6 that we can uh, read it together and learn about who you are and what you have for us uh, this morning. Lord, thank you for time in prayer and time singing to you. And now, Lord, uh, we just pray that you would help us as we read uh, these verses. Help us understand them. Help us uh, apply them to our lives. We pray that you by your spirit, would open our eyes and uh, remove distractions and just allow us, Lord, to hear from you this morning. Uh, We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, welcome. Once again, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here, and just want to say that I'm so glad that you are here, and I want to invite you to open up your Bible or, you know, find on your device John chapter 6, verse 37 is really where we're going to be picking up as we just continue walking through this sermon series in the Gospel of John little by little. We're marching through and we're in kind of this mini-series in John 6 where we're taking about five weeks to walk through John chapter 6 together. We've called it Provider and Provision because we are learning that Jesus is both uh, the provider, the one who gives us everything that we need, and he himself is the provision. He is what we most deeply need. As you're finding John 6, I want to ask you, have you ever seen a plan roll out and instantly you think, this is not going to work? You see a plan unfold. You're like, I'm not sure this is going so well. This doesn't look very good. You know, maybe you're watching a movie and you kind of pick up where the plot line is going. You're like, I know where this is headed and I, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't think this is gonna work. Or maybe you uh, see some, you know, new government campaign rollout idea that's being implemented, and you're like, I, I don't like this. this is not gonna work well. Don't have a good feeling about this. Uh, this is kind of how I feel sometimes about parenting, to be honest, right? I'm like, you know, just like questioning the fundamentals of parenting, like the whole plan. You know, like God, are we are we sure this is gonna work? Like, are you sure, God, that you? I'm not want people being raised by other people, you know? Like, I'm not sure any of us are really qualified for this. This whole plan, just, it's crazy, you know, the lack of sleep and all. It just, it doesn't make sense. Is this really going to work? Um, that's kind of the idea or the feeling you get sometimes when you're reading through the Gospels, and you you hear about kind of the plan of salvation and what Jesus came to do. You, you see, though, how people respond to Jesus, and you're like, is this, is this really going to work? You know, like, It doesn't look like this is going so well because everywhere, you know, at every turn, it's like Jesus is rejected or misunderstood or everybody's confused. Eventually, people want to kill him, and it's like this plan isn't going well. And at the same time, you see Jesus speak with incredible confidence about the mission. He speaks with incredible confidence about the will of his Father and and what he came to do, and it makes us wonder why. Is Jesus so confident about this plan of salvation that it's actually going to work? That's what we kind of see on display in the text this morning in John chapter 6. We just heard part of it read here, some of it again in verse 37. Jesus says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. In these verses, you see that we're sort of wading into some deep waters here as we discuss and consider the will of God. That's a big kind of intimidating phrase, the will of God. What did Jesus come down to accomplish? Now remember the context here in John chapter 6. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you've seen this kind of back and forth dialogue, right, between Jesus and the crowds. And they're confused and they ask questions and Jesus is like, you don't get it. Here's what I'm trying to say. And they still are confused and still don't get it. He's like, here's what I'm trying to say. And kind of back and forth. And we saw that all of it's pointing to who Jesus is, right? Verse 35, he declares that he is the bread of life. And so the miracle when he feeds the crowd bread, that points to him. And they're talking about this Old Testament passage where God miraculously feeds people with manna from heaven. And Jesus is like, yeah, that points to me too. Like it's all trying to show you who I am. And you notice he talks then about why he came, right? Look at verse 38. He came to do what? To do the will of the Lord who sent me. Verse 39, same thing. He talks about the will of him who sent me. Verse 40, same thing, right? God the Father's will. So Jesus over and over again is saying that he came to do the will of his Father. Which at the most basic level reminds us that God has a will. Right? Notice that God has an intention and plans and purposes It's not as if, you know, God exists to be a vending machine in the sky and kind of grant our wishes and make all of our dreams come true, right, and do like kind of whatever our will and direction is. No, he himself has a plan and purpose. He's moving all of history towards his desired end, his purposes. This is why we pray, Lord, your will be done as Jesus taught us. Isaiah 46 reinforces this where God says, my purpose shall stand and I will do all that I please. So God has a will. And Jesus tells us, right, what that will is. What is the will of God? What does God want? What is God uh, moving things towards? Verse 40, my father's will is what? That, That everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. So here is, is the will of God that, that we would, would look to this son and believe and have eternal life. In other words, Jesus came on a rescue mission. Like that's, that's fundamentally what Jesus came to do. He didn't fundamentally come to, uh, to teach us as if our primary need was information, Right? We're ignorant. We need information. That's not primarily what Jesus came to do. He didn't primarily come to be a model for us, of, you know, an example of how to live a life that we could follow. He, he is a, our teacher and he is our model. But, but fundamentally he came to do much more than that. Fundamentally he came, what? To, to rescue us. To save us. To give his life as a sacrifice that we could believe in him and have eternal life. And you see this language repeated in the text, don't you, about uh, raising them up at the last day. I will raise them up at the last day. I will raise them up at the last day. Uh, the Bible, you see, kind of points us forward and gives us this idea of what salvation means and what eternal life looks like. Right? It's not like, hey, we just you know, float around unending, you know, in, un, into unending eternity as spirit beings on clouds, diapers and harps and wings you know we're just like that that's not the picture of eternity that the bible gives us it gives us what of the of resurrection jesus says i will raise them up those who trust in me i will raise them up i will make them alive again that's our hope right resurrection embodied like we'll have bodies resurrected bodies in a in a material redeemed world forever this is the Christian hope. As, as Zoe, my daughter, says, we've been talking about this a lot lately, and she asks, God, will, is Jesus going to build us back up again? You know, we talk about Jesus will make us alive, and that's the language she uses. Is. is he going to build us back up again? It's like, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> that's the idea. For, for everyone who trusts in him, he, though we die, he makes us alive again. He'll raise us up at the last day. Now, notice, Jesus is talking about the will of the Father and believing in him and eternal life and, and the crowd doesn't get it right they're confused again verse 41 at this the jews there did what they began to grumble about him because he said i am the bread that came down from heaven they said is this not jesus the son of joseph whose father and mother we know how can he now say i came down from heaven You, you see what they're saying their objection is pretty simple they're like we know this guy Right like we grew up down the street we watched him play kickball when he was little we know his parents like what's he talking about he came down from heaven Jesus what are you talking about And we see again just the crowd few they continue to miss it right they have mixed motives they're pursuing the wrong things they're they're confused they're they're demanding more signs they're missing like the deeper spiritual realities that Jesus is trying to get them to understand and all of that maybe again makes us wonder what we started talking about at the beginning of the sermon. Like, is this plan going to work? Because nobody seems to be getting it. You know, like, like at every turn, people are confused or misunderstanding or or there's pushback. And so, like, is anyone going to be saved? Like, can can anybody piece this thing together and, and understand Who Jesus is? Is Jesus worried about the success of his mission? Like he's looking at the the feedback so far, you know, like the survey polls from the crowd. He's looking at the survey results, and he's like, this is just not looking good. Father, like I don't know if this plan is working. Is Jesus getting worried? The answer is no. He's he's not getting worried, and we're going to see why, okay? Verse 43, What he responds again, stop grumbling among yourselves. Jesus answered, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day." There, that is again, verse forty-five. It's written in the prophets: they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from Him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only one who has seen the Father. Okay, so Jesus responds again to their grumbling and says, "What?" Verse forty-three. Stop grumbling, which actually is pretty good life advice you could apply to almost any situation. You know, memorize that verse. Jesus said, stop grumbling among yourselves. Okay, that's, that's a good one. Just take that, put it in your pocket. But he, he doesn't answer their objection, right? He instead shows, hey, I'm actually not surprised about your grumbling. And then you notice he talks about some kind of mysterious, maybe a bit hard to understand realities. He shows us why he's confident that the mission will succeed. He's confident that the mission, the plan of salvation, the will of God will be accomplished because it depends on God, not on us. It depends on God, not on us. And maybe you saw that in the text, right? There are these two seemingly contrasting, contradictory realities that Jesus unpacks for us. He talks about one Human responsibility, you could say free will, human decision, our response to believe, and he talks about the sovereign will of God. Notice in the text both of these things. Verse 37, he talks about what? Those who could the Son. Jesus. We have to come to Jesus, right? That's the invitation. Verse 40, we have to look to the Son. We have to look and believe. We have to place our faith in Jesus. Verse 44 and 45, again, uses the language of those who come to Jesus, right? We, we have to make a decision. We have to decide to follow. We have to surrender. We have to believe. We have to put our faith in Him. But also notice in the text, this other layer of God's hand in all this, right? Look at verse 37. Who is it that comes to Jesus, all those the Father gives him. Or verse 39, those who come to Jesus, what? Are those given to him by the Father. Or verse 44 quite clearly says, No one can come to me, no one can come to Jesus, unless what? Unless the Father draws them. So it's talking about our total inability to even believe, to even come to Jesus in our own. Strength. We're only able to come to Jesus if God the Father it says draws us. If God reaches into our heart and does some kind of work right to change our hearts, to enable us to even come to Him, to even believe. It's like that song we sang a few minutes ago. Give me faith. Right? I need you to come, we sang, to soften my heart and break me apart. Like I need you, God, to come and do something in my heart because my heart is hard. And it's cold, and I need you to come and do what I can't do for myself. And so maybe you hear these, these two realities and you wonder, well, which is it? Right? Like, is it, do, do we come to Jesus and put our faith in him and choose to follow him? Or does, does God draw us to Jesus and, and he brings us to faith in his son? Is it, is it us or is it God? I think the answer is yes. Right? The, the text Teaches both. And in the Jewish view of the world, uh, there was room for both of these realities. The sovereign, mysterious will of God and human choice, decision, will, choosing to follow Jesus. Uh, The author of this gospel, John, apparently John has no problem putting these two realities. Apparently Jesus has no problem putting these two realities right next to each other. God's sovereign will in election unto salvation, sometimes labeled predestination or Calvinism, and human responsibility. And response, right? And maybe that's hard for us um, to sort of sort out exactly how does that work in like the metaphysics and the philosophy and what does it mean that both of those things can be true? Uh, but I just want us to see very simply that the Bible teaches both realities. It's a theme throughout the book, the sovereignty of God, and yet that that never negates the significance of human decision. Throughout Scripture, we never see A human responsibility uh, uh, kind of removed, or as if, hey, we're we're off the hook. It's not really up to us. We're constantly invited, called to receive, to believe, to come, to put our faith in Jesus. And yet, at the same time, you know, it's almost as if Jesus kind of pulls the veil back a little bit and looks kind of below the surface, behind the scenes, at this this deeper, mysterious reality of the will of God and His sovereignty, and who comes and who does not. There's more going on then we realize but simply put that's why Jesus has confidence in the success of this mission All right look at the confidence with which he speaks verse 37 those the father gives to him what they will come to me it's not like maybe or i hope you know people come and trust in me those the father gives me they will they will come to me because ultimately it depends not on us but on god now you might be wondering, well, this kind of, okay, it seems like mysterious. Like, either way, is, don't we just, we're supposed to believe. Like, either way, no matter what the behind-the-scenes thing, the invitation is for us to believe. And, and yes, that is true, but here's an application or two, like why this matters. You know, what's the so what here? One, when we think about salvation, we need to realize that it's God who moves towards us. God makes the first move. It's not that, that we, like, are off on this journey to seek and find God, and he's kind of hard to find. But what does the Bible uh, say? It gives us this image, what, of a lost sheep that, that Jesus comes and finds. Right? He seeks after us, and he draws us in, and he brings us home. He came and saw me. So I'm, I'm not saved because I'm, you know, like, smarter than everybody else or kind of like put it all together, uh, you know, connected the dots when other people couldn't. I, I'm a Christian because the grace of God has changed my heart, and humanly speaking, it doesn't add up. Right? Think about. It. I want you to think about uh, why you're here this morning, and if you're here, and you are a Christian, think about why are you a Christian, and other people aren't, and, and not just like you know people off in like a remote village far away, and what about those who have never heard like not that, but like why are you a Christian, and, and again, people maybe in your family or in your neighborhood, people who heard the same gospel as you did. They heard the same message from the same people, maybe from the same parents. Maybe you're walking with the Lord and a sibling is not. Or your family is walking with the Lord and, and your, your neighbors are not. Even though you, again, heard the same message. Maybe people you, you grew up in church with, you grew up in youth group with, you uh, went to church, you know, as families together, and now they've walked away and, and don't care about Jesus. And maybe not. They ever really cared about Jesus. Like, why is it that you're here and they're not? How can you explain that? Is it, is it because again you, you were smarter than them, <laughs> more, you know more, more sincere than them, put the dots together better than they could? I, don't, I think about my own life. I look back at my youth group experience when I came to know the Lord, and, and I look in the years since youth group, and I see just like so, like so many people have just have walked away. Right, I want nothing to do with Jesus. People who, frankly, seemed much more spiritual and involved than I did back then. And it's like, but they're not walking with the Lord. And so I have to ask, like, why is it that I'm a Christian? And not even talking about being a pastor, but just even a Christian. And I know the answer. And the answer is, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know the answer, okay? It doesn't make sense. Like, because I look back at myself and it's like, I wasn't, definitely wasn't the smartest. Um, wasn't the most consistent. Wasn't even the most sincere, or humble. or like There's no quality within me you could point to and be like, oh, well, he had more of that than others. I didn't. I don't know. It's a miracle. Seriously, it's a miracle that any of us are walking with Christ. We can't explain it. We didn't deserve it. It's simply the grace of God, right? There, but by the grace of God go I. What other explanation can there be? So God moves toward us. And second, we can celebrate this truth because it allows us to rest. We can rest and not not fear that we will fall out of God's grace. Not fear that we will lose our salvation because salvation wasn't ours to earn in the first place, so it's not ours to lose. Right? Maybe you're here and you're worried, you're like, if I, am I even a Christian, I don't know. If, I, you know, if, if I sinned too much or tested the Lord's patience one too many times, or I, I know I believe, but I feel like I don't measure up or haven't done enough good or whatever your your doubt might be. And if this is true, that that the Lord is the one who who saves us and keeps us, right? What does Jesus say? Verse 39, I will lose none of all that the Father has given me. Those who are given to me, those whom the Father has drawn and entrusted to me, I'm not going to lose them. They're not going to slip out of my hands. I'm not going to, like, look away and be like, oh, no, there goes John. You know, like, I'm not going to lose them. Sounds like what he says in John 10, that we are given to Christ and no one will snatch us out of his hand, he says. So our salvation is secure. He says, I will raise them up. Not again, most of those that the Father gives me, I'll keep and then raise them up. But some of them, I, I will raise them up at the last day. So there's great confidence and rest and peace in these truths. Now, Jesus continues. Check it out, Verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Talking about bread again here. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He's talking about eternal life. He repeats this massive claim. Remember last week, verse 35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Here, verse 48, he says the same thing. Remember how much we've been talking about bread, making people hungry, making us, especially second service here, we're ready for lunch, people, putting bread in your mind. The feeding of the 5,000 just happened the day before. People were eating bread, wanting more bread. And Jesus is showing us, right, he's like trying to point us to a deeper spiritual reality. Trying to say, hey, it, this is about more than just the bread. And they're like, well, hey, our ancestors ate bread in the wilderness for like 40 years from Moses. So, like, we need some more bread, you know, to eat. And he's like, there's, there, there's something bigger here, something more important than just the bread. And he says, what? Well, I'm the bread. I'm the true bread. I'm the living bread. I'm the bread that came from heaven, the bread of life. I am what you need. And so in one sense, we have to step back and ask, like, is, is much interpretation even necessary? Is much commentary even needed here? You know, Right? Like, could I just close the Bible, pray, and we'll be done here? You know, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I mean, how, how simple, how clear. We need bread to survive. Bread sustains us. Food sustains us. In the same way, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to survive, to sustain us unto eternal life. He alone, he alone can give us what we need for life forever. He's the only source. And so you notice again, he, he keeps drawing our attention to this bigger picture right, of like eternal realities, trying to help us think beyond just, just the here and now. Some of us, uh, myself included, we can get a tunnel vision, right, and just think about like what's, like what's pressing right now, like living week to week and just kind of the crazy pace of life. And Jesus is trying to say, hey, just zoom out a little bit, like think a little bit just beyond the next week or the next year, like think about just eternal realities, and he says to the people, you know, this is so good, he says to the people, he's like, you're looking for bread, your ancestors ate manna, I get that, but verse 49, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, God fed them miraculously, amen, that's cool, but hey, they still died. See, it's kind of it feels like he's playing hardball with the people a little bit. It's like, hey, great, God fed them, they still died. He's saying, don't. Think so much about just a temporary provision. Think about it. maybe there, there's like big need on your heart that you're coming in with this morning. You have some big prayer requests. Maybe it's you know for some a new job, a new career path, uh, getting into a certain school you want to, uh, some promotion you're desiring. God could answer your prayer, and that will be a great gift. And guess what? You're still gonna die, right? Or you could say, man, I've really, you know, there's some, some dream you have about, again, you want a spouse or you want kids or you want to buy a home. Or there's some vision for your future that you're moving towards. And God could answer that prayer. And maybe he will. Praise God. That's a great thing. Those are great things. But then guess what? You're still going to die. Right? Or you could be healed. You could be these. We could talk about really serious things. You could be healed. Maybe you'll beat cancer. Praise God. What a gift. And he you extends your life 10, 15, 20 years. Praise God. But guess what? You're still going to die. And that's what he's trying to say. He's like, they ate the manna. They had this miraculous provision. God answered these prayers. Great. They still died. So he's trying to say, just zoom out just a little. Right? Make sure you have the bigger picture, the eternal perspective. Don't just settle for the temporary. Yes, following Jesus is relevant to our lives now. Every day. The gospel impacts how we live, how we interact with people, what we pursue. There's these eternal realities to consider. Jesus said elsewhere, right? Well, now, to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul. What good is it to gain everything in the here and now? Have an endless supply of temporary bread. Eventually, you're going to die. And so he makes this way of salvation really clear, right? Verse 51 I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Okay, so in verse 51, he talks about uh, he came down from heaven again. He's like, I know that made you grumble before. I'm going to say it again. I came down from heaven, which is what what we celebrate at Christmas, right? The doctrine of the incarnation, God coming down to us. We celebrate this at Christmas time, God in the flesh. He says, I will give my life, my body, for the life of the world. This is sacrificial language, right? It's like, I came down to give my life, to give my flesh. For the life of the world. When the Apostle Paul was writing about the gospel in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. When we think about the gospel message, the good news, here's the first thing I want you to think of. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. He gave his flesh, his body was given for the life of the world. That for word For our sins is substitutionary language. He died in our place for us, in our stead, in our place, because of our sins, on our behalf. He takes it all. He carries it himself. He carries the consequences, the punishment for our sin in our place so that we can be cleansed and forgiven and adopted, brought into the family of God. Now, again, the crowd, get, get this, the crowd is confused. Didn't see that coming, right? Okay, the crowd, they're confused. Verse 52, right? The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Like eating your flesh, that sounds like cannibalism. We're not about that, Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. And he says, what, verse 53, very truly I tell you, unless you, he, he doubles down. Check it out. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This isn't some crazy youth group game, okay? This is Jesus giving it to us uh, very clearly. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, one who feeds on me, who feeds on me, will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna, and again, reminder, they died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So Jesus' language here is what—it's pretty, it's kind of troubling, right? it's kind of graphic. Startling, even for us, for a first century Jew, this would be downright just offensive. I mean, wildly inappropriate. Okay, good Jews knew that cannibalism was off limits, drinking blood was forbidden, even eating meat with blood still in it for them was not good. So, they're like, what in the world is going on? Like, he's totally lost it. Okay, these are scandalous claims eating flesh, drinking blood. I mean, even if they get that he's speaking metaphorically, like in some way they're still just like, I, I'm lost here, like I don't get what you're trying to say, Jesus. Now, it's important for us to reflect on this, but first a historical note. Christians in the first century were uh, made fun of, uh, ridiculed, persecuted even, because of language like this, okay, because word kind of got out about um, eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus, this sort of language. And people, seriously, in the first century were like, those Christians are cannibals. Like, they're talking about eating the flesh of their Lord. Like, what is going on behind closed doors? Like, hard pass on the whole Jesus theme because those people are weird, okay? So, uh, Christians write books. Today, we get a bad rap for any, any number of things. At least we don't have to deal with this one, okay? We don't have to write books about how we don't actually, uh, you know, cannibalize people and so on. But anyways, that's just a historical note. That was free. But you see, um, we need to figure out, okay, what exactly is Jesus saying here then? And I think maybe you guys are already picking up on this. It's it's fairly straightforward, right? In verse 40, if you look back at verse 40, he says what? Everyone who looks and believes has eternal life, okay? And then here, verse 54, a pretty parallel statement. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And so it becomes clear that basically eating his flesh, drinking his blood, is a a startling way to speak about believing in him, right? Receiving him. Actually, as we celebrate communion, right, it it images this, right? We take the bread and the blood and we consume it. So we eat his flesh, drink his blood, we we feed on him. It's a vivid metaphor for coming to him. And over and over again, if if you just look back, like on your own time after this, just look back at the passage, And you'll see how many times Jesus talks about believing in him or receiving him or coming to him or or eating his flesh. Look at verse 35, verse 40, verse 45, verse 47, verse 50, verse 51, verse 54, verse 56, verse 57, verse 58. All of those have some variation of believe, receive, being what eat. (laughs) Some way of speaking about coming to him and receiving what he has to offer. So with that Sort of reinforcement and repetition. Is it any question again what the, the main takeaway is? Jesus has just come to me. I have something to offer you you can find nowhere else. Just come receive. And I will abide in you. And I will give you new life now. And I will give you a resurrection at the last day. Now, in, in one sense, you might wonder well, if, it's just, if it just boils down to belief, if it's just like that simple, like, is that too easy? You know, like we just like throw up a prayer right now, and then, you know, go and do whatever we want, and like that, I'm in. You know, I'm good. I I, I believed. I looked. Again, in one sense, salvation is absolutely this free gift that we don't earn or work for. We simply receive. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. We just by the work of Christ, His death and resurrection, and our trust in Him. We come open handed and receive this new life with Him. And yet, at the same time, in another sense, following Jesus is extremely costly, right? We're not talking about cheap grace, easy believism, because Jesus calls us, what, to come and die, to repent, right? To turn from our sin and our old way of life and to follow him as Savior and Lord. I I read the story one time of uh, Pastor Tim Keller, my love, author, pastor, speaking about this woman who came to his church, and she grew up in a church that, that basically taught, hey, you get right with God through your ethical behavior, right? Do the good stuff, avoid the bad stuff, be a good person, um, you know, give a little bit to the church, go to a homeless shelter every now and then, and you'll be saved, right? Like, and if your good works outweigh your bad works, you'll be saved. That was kind of the church that she grew up in. And then she started starts going to Redeemer, where Tim Keller was a pastor, and starts hearing about this the gospel, this message of, of salvation through faith in Christ, through no work of our own, not because of what we have done, not because of what we earn. And she said to Pastor Keller, she said, that is a really scary idea. And he was like, scary? There's like, a lot of words you could use to describe it. What do you mean scary? Like you wanted to understand, what, what, what about this is scary? And she, she goes on to explain If I was saved by my good works, then I would have rights. You know, then God God would owe me something. I I would have earned it. There would be, you know, limits on what God could ask of me. You know, me and God could negotiate a little bit. You know, I've done my part, and so God, I I expect this quality of life, or this sort of response, or these answer to my prayers. Like, I'd have rights, kind of like a taxpaying citizen has rights. But... If it's true that I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace at God's infinite cost, right, he sent his son for me, then and there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And she so realized, yes, it's it's a free gift and our fear is removed because the love of God is given freely to all who trust in him and yet we have to realize that it calls us to Surrender and this woman realized if if this is true, then that means I am not my own. Right? I've been bought with a price. I've been redeemed. And I can't call the shots anymore then. So the invitation to believe and put our faith in Christ, yes, is to receive freely what He has given us, but then it's also to to turn, to repent to turn from our sins, our idols, all the things that we've chased and pursued above God. We're called to reorder our lives with God at the center. And so it, it makes us wonder, I, I want you to consider this morning, is there something that you need to surrender this morning? You know, a way that you said, yes, I've, I believe Jesus, but you know, this part of my life I'd like to kind of keep to myself, thank you very much. You know, like, I believe you for salvation. That's great. Thank you so much. But, like, I'm not so sure I want you as Lord of my life in, in these areas. I don't know what that looks like for you. you know, it's like maybe you look at Jesus and you say, you know, I really, I think I know better than him. You know, like, maybe you want to say that out loud. But in your heart, you're like, I know he says to be generous and, and, and give my money to his purposes. But, like, I kind of rather, you know spend it on travel or toys or, you know, how I want on me, you know? Or, or maybe you say, you know what, I, I know Jesus calls me to live a life of of, of purity, right, and to, to handle my relationships and sexuality in, in his way, but like, I, you know, if it makes me happy, I think I kind of know better, you know, than him. Uh, or maybe you would say, you know, with my time, you know, I like a lot of priorities. I got a lot of things I got to do. And so I know Jesus says there are certain things I should prioritize in terms of him and his kingdom and so on. But like, I, I kind of think I'm going to set it up my own way. And I'm not so sure I want Jesus meddling, you know, in my my calendar. I don't, I don't know what it looks like for you. It could be any number of things. But likely the, the Holy Spirit is kind of like maybe giving you a nudge right now, saying this, you know, pointing out <laughs> that there's something, a part of your heart, that you've reserved, or, or a belief that something else other than Jesus is, is better. It's going to be better for you. You're going to have more joy and more peace in your life if you just have whatever it is. So the question is, are, are you willing to surrender, to come to Jesus, yes, and believe in him, and receive the bread of life and trust in him, but then also say, Jesus, you are Lord, you are king. I will do things your way. That's where the rubber really meets the road for each of us, right? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we we believe that you are the bread of life, that you came down from heaven to give your body, your flesh for the life of the world. You died for us. And so we, uh, Lord, we we just want to say thank you. We know that we cannot earn our salvation or work for it. We don't deserve it. Um but you freely give it. So so thank you, Jesus. We want to believe in you. And and, and we pray, Lord, that you'd help us demonstrate, act on that belief uh, by surrendering to you in all of life. Lord, each day, every category of our life, whether it's our relationships or our time or our money or our careers, our pursuits, whatever it might be, Lord, take it all. It's yours. I pray this in your name. Amen.